You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. That was good. That was good. Uh, today is a good day and a special day. I just got back from camp my second week this summer. It was fifth to sixth grade this time, and uh, it was super cool. There were 11 kids baptized at camp. Some of them were Kingsway people. And then last night came home, and my oldest was baptized here in the baptistry last night at Kingsway. And uh, yeah, yeah, we just have to give God the glory. I'm still trying to find out the exact number, but I think that makes, including this one today, four in the last couple of weeks between camps and here and other things. So it's just really cool to see what God is doing. It's a special time. And so I wrote this. Wasn't there a song back in the 80s? Like, I was dreaming when I wrote this. This is like this sermon. It was like trying to stay up until like two in the morning, multiple nights at camp in a dorm of smelly middle schoolers, trying to put this together and trying not to weep my way through it because the content is so good. So if you're visiting with us today, we're going to the Psalms, and today we're gonna take a little bit of a different approach in our Psalms, because this Psalm is very specifically a prophetic Psalm. And what that means is, it is talking specifically about Jesus and a specific moment in Jesus' life. And I picked this Psalm because there are a lot of other Psalms like it, but I wanted us to feel it and see it and wrestle with what it means and what it means for us. It was about halfway through the week, uh, the speaker of the week did a whole message on fear. He talked about Jesus walking in water, and then he talked about uh, the boat being filled with water and the disciples being overcome with fear. And then we went off into our groups, and uh, we were told to just talk about the content of the message that night. And so I'm sitting in a, in a circle with a bunch of fifth and sixth graders, and I'm thinking to myself, how am I supposed to talk about fear with a bunch of fifth and sixth graders? And so I just asked them, hey, what are you most afraid of? And some of them had some like silly things, like, I'm afraid I'm going to fall off a cliff. I'm like, you do realize we're like on flat ground right now. You are Okay. And others were afraid of like airplanes and flying. I get it. One had a traumatic experience with a plane, like nosediving for a bit. I get it. But then we went around the circle and these kids started sharing deep, profound things. One kid literally lived through his parents being drug addicted and alcohol addicted. And uh, it was a really dangerous and scary situation until he was taken out of the home and then was adopted by a Christian family at four years old. And another kid, uh, his parents split because... Dad left the family for somebody else, and uh, his greatest fear was that um, his mom was going to leave him, too. And then another kid shared something very, very similar, and then another kid shared something very, very similar, and uh, I walked away not okay with God that night. I literally um, just had this long walk while the kids were doing something else, and I just wept before the Lord. I thought, God, these are 10 and 11-year-olds. They should not be walking around with the weight of the world on their shoulders, but it's the world we live in. And the world we live in is a serious place sometimes. And so this message lands in all the right places because either, as I say often, you're in a struggle, you're coming out of a struggle, or you're gonna go into a struggle. And depending on where you are in the middle of that will depend on how this message hits you because God might have this message planned for you to get into the struggle with someone else. I'm, I'm in a good place personally, but at that week, I was like, okay, God, I know why I'm here. I'm here to go to war against the enemy on behalf of these young men. And so that was my mission this past week. So I don't know how God's going to use this to prepare you. But there came a moment after everybody shared, and again, some had deep things, some had not very deep things. But I looked at all of them and I said, at the end of the day, we all have to be able to resolve this one question. 
even if the worst happens, can you trust God? Even if the absolute worst, the greatest fear you have imagined happens to you, can you trust God? Is he still good? This may take you a lifetime to resolve. My experience with God has been over and over and over again, he proves himself faithful and true. You can rely upon him. But if you don't know that, you may not be sure of your answer. So today, I wanna give you a little bit of anchor as to why you can resolve this question with a resounding yes. Now, in order to get into this Psalm, Psalm 22, if you wanna open your Bible, we'll be there. Depending on what translation you use, I'll be using the NIV. They may not say the exact same thing. It'll be close enough. There are over 20, I think it's over 20 prophecies about Jesus in the last 24 hours of his life before he dies on the cross that come true. And many of those are found specifically in Psalm 22. Now, in order for this to really sink in, because I'm going to show you a bunch of them, we don't even have time to go through all of them. There's so many. In order to help this sink in, I have to be able to give this little nugget for you. So if you're new to this thing called church or God or Bible or whatever, Psalm 22 was written roughly a thousand years before Jesus. Roughly a thousand years. Even if I'm off by a couple hundred years and it was 800 years or 1200 years, it really wouldn't change much. The fact that we can predict with this kind of accuracy what would happen to Jesus in the last 24 hours of his life ought to make you go, wow, how is that possible? I want you to imagine that America looks even somewhat similar to what it does today, somewhat similar. And imagine a thousand years from now predicting exactly who would be in the NCAA tournament, who would win in each round and exactly the score of the last game. It would be impossible. Exactly. And so when that happens, to the degree of certainty that it happens, it makes you stand back and go, huh. Maybe the Bible isn't just made up fiction. Maybe the Bible isn't just somebody's ideas trying to control people, which is what a lot of us have been told our whole lives. Maybe the Bible is actually God's word to us that he actually wanted to communicate to us through these authors many years ago so that we could know who he is and what he's like and what he wants to do in the world with us and through us. Now, without wasting any more time, what I'm going to do now is show you Psalm 22, again, roughly a thousand years before, and then I'm gonna go through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four accounts are four authors who either saw or wrote from people who saw they were eyewitnesses or they interviewed, like reporters interviewed eyewitnesses of the actual last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And I'm going to show you how Psalm 22, a thousand years beforehand predicts this, and then we're told these things. And we're just going to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then we're going to go, and why is it relevant? Because Psalm 22 tells us why it's relevant. So let's go ahead and jump in. Psalm 22, verse one and two starts out with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. 
It's been said that when a rabbi wanted to teach on a text in Jesus' day, they would often get up and say the first line or two of the text, and the people knew it so well that they could recall the text in their own mind, and then they didn't have to necessarily read the entire text. There's some debate among scholars as to whether that is 100% as to what is happening here, but it is fascinating nonetheless. It is around 94 to 96% of the people in Jesus' day couldn't read or write. And so the way that they processed the word of God is they listened to it over and over and over again and committed lots of it to memory, especially the boys who would go to school specifically to learn the word of God, the laws of God, the ways of God. And so they would have it committed to memory. So when Jesus is literally hanging on the cross, and in Mark chapter 15, verse 34 it says at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus was likely doing while he's hanging there is he's connecting the rest of Psalm 22 to his listeners' ears so that they would know this is what we always said would have to happen. You may recall, I've quoted this before, that Jesus said, until everything written about me and in the Psalms and the prophets and the history books is fulfilled, nothing's going to happen to me. In other words, they keep trying to take Jesus. They keep trying to kill Jesus. They keep trying to stone Jesus. And he says, uh-uh, until every single word is written about me, nobody's gonna take my life from me. So Jesus already said the Psalms are prophetically written about him. And this one is absolutely true. But it tells us something also about what Jesus is thinking and feeling in this very heavy moment. Hanging on the cross, he feels left and abandoned. We are told theologically what's happening in this moment while he's got his hands and his feet pierced, the crown of thorns on his head, his flesh stripped open from the cat of nine tails. While all of this is happening, spiritually, he's feeling separated from his father because he's carrying the weight of my sin, your sin, all of eternity's sin upon himself. And for the first time in all of eternity, he's separated from his father. When we speak of eternity, what we tend to think of is from this moment forward, from now on, right? From now on, that's what we tend to think of. But Jesus has been with the Father for eternity past as well as eternity future. They have always been in relationship and community together. And the only thing that could separate them is sin. So hanging on the cross at the brink of his death, he is literally carrying the weight of sin. This is not just about the physical pain. This is about the disconnect that he feels for the first time ever from his life source, from his love, from his heart, his father, father God himself. And he's crying out, where are you? Because in his hour of need, he feels isolated and alone. Psalm 22, verse six, and we're gonna have to jump all over the place just because we don't have time to go through the whole thing. You should read the rest of it on your own. It says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you see it? You may not know this, but this is exactly what happened as Jesus hung there on the cross. We are told 
historically that when people were crucified, they were usually crucified in some sort of way or place so that others could see them. In fact, it's been hypothesized that as Jesus carried his own cross and so did the other thieves with him, they would take them through various streets throughout the town and they would have as some sort of placard that would go before them what their crime was. He was crucified between two thieves, two criminals. And so it might've said, you know, stole whatever, tried to do this thing. And for Jesus it said, Jesus Christ, king of the Jews. And there could only be one king, and that would be Caesar, and that would be his crime. And what that would do is say to everybody else, do not commit this crime, or the same punishment might happen to you. Then they would, after parading them in front of everybody, people would look at them and mock them and cajole them and many times think to themselves, you got what you deserve. And that's exactly what happened as Jesus was hung on the cross. It says in Matthew 27, verse 39, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. A thousand years beforehand, we were told exactly what people would do exactly how people would respond. And then they did. And as Jesus hung there, so the way that his story went was a little unique to other crucifixions, but crucifixion was super common in Jesus' day. In fact, the first crucifixions actually came hundreds of years before Jesus. They originally began, ah, if there's kids in the room, you may want to distract them for a few moments. They originally came by impaling people. They would put a pole down into the ground and sharpen the tip and literally take a body and go. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to go much deeper than that. It's pretty gross. But they would do it in such a way that literally the person would just hang there, literally kind of impaled. And then various wild animals and various um, birds and whatnots would, you can imagine. Okay, right? We get it. Okay, moving on. But what would happen is that actually began with, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was the Persians who handed off to the Assyrians, then to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. And with each passing generation of people who took up this uh, crucifixion, each generation and each people group got more and more sinister with it to the point where by the time the Romans were doing it, they had perfected the art. In fact, our word today, excruciating, comes from the word crucifixion. And you may notice that the two words sound a lot alike. There's a reason. Because it is as unfathomable a painful experience as you can put your head around and wrap your head around. They had figured out exactly how to extrapolate pain. In Jesus' case, at the Last Supper was likely his last meal. At the Last Supper was likely his last food and drink. And so as he left the Last Supper, went into the garden and was stressed out praying, it's possible that the capillaries in his forehead bust open from the stress. It says that, that blood and water flowed from his forehead in Luke. It's very possible he's explaining something called hematidrosis. This, this, when you're under extreme pressure, extreme stress, this can actually happen. But all of this would have led to profound dehydration. 
Then he's led from trial to trial to trial where he's spit on and mocked and he's got to walk and travel to and from each destination from Pilate to Herod and Herod to Pilate and back again. Then he's whipped with the cat of nine tails. This is the flogging if you've seen the Passion of the Christ where they would have had some sort of pillar or tree or stump of something and he would have been tied to it and they would have taken a whip, one on each side and taken out a leather bound holder and then nine strips of leather coming out from it. And each of those, some had like um, heavy balls or lead on them and others had glass or sharp stone or, or bone attached to them, little circles as you're coming out. And uh, the small heavy balls were intended to tenderize the flesh. You know, like when you're trying to soften the meat before you cook it, same kind of thing. It would create these bruises and the bone and the glass and the stone would catch and drag and rip open his flesh. And my point to all this is even more blood loss, even more uh, dehydration is setting in. This is why Jesus is so fatigued that as they hand him, whether it's his beam or the entire cross, we don't know. Between 75 and 250 pounds worth of wood and the strong former carpenter who walked everywhere he went didn't have the strength to carry it because he's depleted and exhausted and dehydrated. So that by the time he gets to the cross and he's hanging there, he is desperate for a drink. And it says in Psalm 22, verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Under John 19, 28 to 30, it says later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. It is a direct reference to Psalm 22. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Literally everything he went through we were told he would go through before he went through it. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen says, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. This psalm and this verse in this psalm was so convincing that multiple, multiple, multiple Jews for years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, came to faith in Jesus because of this one verse. It became so problematic for the rabbis to keep control of the people, keep them from converting to Christianity, that they started to change the translation that they used. I don't have time to go into this. If you're really fascinated, shoot me an email. I'll shoot you some links. There's some really good stuff out there. In fact, go to gotquestions.org and you can look all this up for yourself. They have a really good summary, though there's deeper stuff you could do. But at the time of Jesus' day, most of the people used something called the Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it said this. Well, the rabbi switched to a Hebrew translation that was not as old and not as trustworthy because it was translating this passage differently. And they had so many people converting to Jesus, they had to find a way to make people not think Jesus was the Messiah. That's how convincing this text is when you read it as it's intended. 
because how else could you predict with such accuracy a thousand years beforehand what would happen? It goes on in verse 17 and 18. It says, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Matthew 27, 35 says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Even if, even if, just suppose, like like a, a mental thought for a moment, even if the disciples who were really good Jews and had studied their Old Testament, even if they made up a story about Jesus and simply said, okay, we're going to make the way that Jesus crucified fit what we know of the Old Testament, even if that's what they did, because I have a friend who has abandoned the Christian faith, and this is what he now argues. These are really good Jews, and so they just wrote the story in such a way that it looks like it's fulfilling it. They cannot control what the Romans do. All it would take is one Roman soldier there that day to say, no, we didn't. We didn't do that. All it would take is one witness. There are lots of people standing around saying, we didn't do that. They could shut this whole thing down. And not one historical document says the opposite. They would take out these long nails I like to compare them to like railroad tie, nail, tie nails. I don't, I don't know that they're actually like that. There's debate as to whether they drove it through his hand. It is nearly impossible to put a large nail through your hand without breaking a bone. Not impossible, but nearly impossible. Very, very, very difficult. And we are told in multiple passages that none of his bones were broken. That's one of the ones we just saw in Psalm 22. All my bones are on display. And there are others. That's why many believe that it was the, the nail itself went here, just below the wrist bone. You could find a spot right in there. You can actually split the bones with your fingers and you'll find a nerve right in there. And if you push hard enough on the nerve, it's gonna hurt. You should probably try this, it'd be good. And if you really push hard enough, you'll feel, you'll feel your fingers start to curve inward. And if you were to take something sharp and pierce it, it would actually give a claw-like shape, but these bones have been shown, they've actually tested this on cadavers and things, that it could hold the body, to put one on both sides. And there was a hole through the top of your foot that could come out the bottom of your foot where a nail could fit right through there, never break a bone, and it could go right down into the other foot, piercing both and leaving them there. And the way that a person typically dies on a cross is you have to pull on these nails, push on these nails, fight to get a breath, and they would put a piece of wood on the back at the perfect location where you would have to keep your body arched to where you can't fill up your lungs with air. And so the only way to breathe is to push on these painful places and take a breath and then to sit again while you begin to fill up with carbon dioxide. And every time your body forces you to breathe, every time it is excruciatingly painful. It is believed without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was crucified naked as they took his garments and gambled for them below. And you may think, well, why don't they ever show that in movies? And you go, really? And who wants to see that? But it was the ultimate form of mockery to strip someone of their last piece of dignity as they die slowly. Psalm 22, 19 says, but you, Lord, 
do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I don't have time to go into this. There's a couple verses in Psalm 22 that are very, very much referring to the demonic. There's a passage about the bulls of Bashan. Here you see the wild oxen, the mouth of lions. Throughout ancient Israel and their interactions with the world around them, there are these false gods and deities that have peered up. And over time, Israel often started worshiping them. And that was the whole point of why God had to discipline them in the first place because they stopped worshiping him and turned to all these other things. These references in Psalm 22 are clear references, if you understand their reference points, to the spiritual battle taking place in this very moment for the Messiah. So while he's hanging there, it's not the Jews who put him there. It's not the Romans who put him there. Oh, they were physically responsible, but there's a greater battle going on as Satan believed he had won the day. He killed the Messiah. He didn't even realize he was stepping into a trap himself. And what that ought to tell us, see, all of us are in the middle of a real spiritual battle. I know it's not popular to talk about, right? Everybody wants to find a church. We don't talk about these things, but the Bible talks about them a lot. And so I want to talk about the things the Bible talks about. And what the Bible affirms to us is that we are in a real battle. Have you ever noticed that that person you're married to that you crazy love one minute and they drive you crazy the next, right? And you go like, where did that come from? How did this person that I was willing to die for, I now want to kill? How <laughs> is that possible? Have you ever noticed that your kids, you just think, ah, oh, just the most amazing. You throw this amazing birthday party for them and halfway through the party, you think, my kids are the most spoiled kids in the world. What is wrong with them? Why don't they appreciate me? How is it that you can absolutely love your job one minute, hate it the next? I mean, how is it? I'm reading this morning about literally a riot going on. I think it was in Sri Lanka and they literally took the, I don't know what he's called, the president, he's not, probably not called that, but whatever, Sri Lanka, and they like set his house on fire because he has failed so miserably in his job. That's what the article said. I have no idea what the, I don't follow Sri Lankan politics very much, but I do find this interesting. Revelation tells us that when there is war, those who suffer the most are those who have the least amount of resources. And we have a terrible war going on between Russia and Ukraine and all over the world, the people with the least amount of resources are suffering the most. And the reason I find all of that fascinating is, where does war come from? Where does greed come from? Where does abuses of power come from? It all comes from sin that has wrecked this world and is being fed upon and abused in the spiritual world. And it's happening in my life and it's happening in your life. But in this moment, on this cross, Jesus defeated the enemy so that I don't have to live in fear of his power and his temptations and what he might do to me. Instead, I can identify with Jesus hanging on the cross saying, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. 
Right now, it feels like you're a million miles away, but I'm calling on you. Be near to me because Jesus knows with absolute certainty he's still being heard. It feels like I'm being crushed. I'm literally dying. I am moments from my last breath, but I know, I know this is not the end of my story. I know no matter what's coming at me, you are good and you are faithful, which comes back to the original question. Even if the worst happens, can I still trust God? What I put out there in the notes is it's okay to be hurt. It's okay to feel afraid. It's okay to even be mad at God as long as you still cry out to him. It's exactly what Jesus did in his greatest hour of pain and suffering and need. He didn't just keep it in. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet I know that you are near and I cry out to you, help. He goes on in verse 11, he says, do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Do you hear it? Everybody else has failed me. Everybody else has abandoned me. Literally, one of his disciples sold him for 30 pieces of silver. 10 of the other 11 are hiding in the upper room for fear of what might happen to themselves. One of those 10, Peter, has already denied that he even knows him three times. And only one of them hiding, John, is there to see the cross itself. One. And he's not really doing anything to stop it. He feels powerless and afraid, I'm sure. Jesus says, there's nobody else to help me. Everybody else has abandoned me. But you, God, that's the point. You, God, you have not quit. You, God, you have not left me. You, God, are faithful to the end. How can you say he's faithful? You're dying. Because I know his character. And I trust him. That even if the worst happens, he's still good. And that's the point. You have to keep reminding yourself of the truth when you are tempted to believe the lies. See, that's the nugget for us as we read Psalm 22. We have to keep telling ourselves, I know who God is. I know who he is. I don't understand. I don't understand what's happening. I don't know what's gonna happen next. I'm afraid, God. What if, God? But I know, I know your character. I've seen it. I've read about it. I've heard it. I've witnessed it. God, I know, I know. So even though I don't understand what's next, I'm gonna keep doing the right thing. Whatever the right thing is right now, I'm gonna believe what I know of you to be true, even when I don't understand how you're gonna get me there. And this is not the end of Jesus' story, right? I taught a class last week at camp. I took 40 minutes to teach a class I'm gonna do for you in 40 seconds. Congratulations. Because I'm just gonna connect one big point and leave the rest of it out of it. In the very beginning, God made Adam and Eve. And he gave them one thing, don't eat of this tree. And they did it. So among many other things, God took them and moved them outside the garden. And this was a mercy because there's another tree in there, the tree of life, that if they eat from it, they'll live forever. And God doesn't want them stuck in their sinful state until things are rectified, until things are fixed. Then they can come and eat of the tree of life. But until then, they can't come in. See, you read that and you think, God wants away from me. God doesn't want me. But then he placed two angels with flaming swords to guard them from coming back into the garden. That's relevant because with each progressing generation, God gets a little closer and a little closer and a little closer to us. And and I'll just tell you some of them, right? We see the prophets and the priests and the kings and we get the law of God, the the ways of God, excuse me. And in the Old Testament, we get this big old box 
It's the Ark of the Covenant. And everywhere the Ark goes, it represents the, the, the presence of God. And everywhere the Ark goes, the Israelites win. And when the Ark doesn't go, the Israelites lose. And the top of the Ark, there are two angelic golden figures whose wings face each other. How many? Two. How many guarded the way from keeping out of the garden? Two. And this is so powerful because this little thing became known as the judgment seat or the mercy seat. And eventually the ark made it into a tent and then eventually a, a temple where it was walled off from a thick curtain. And one time a year, the high priest could go in and he would sprinkle some blood from an animal on there. And it was said to purify the Israelites for one year, Yom Kippur, to purify them from all sin. And this is such a cool thing because then when Jesus comes and right as he says, it's is finished. An earthquake comes. I actually got to see in February of this year in Israel, a place where the earth is cracked right next to where they believe the tomb where Jesus was laid is buried. And you can see the cracked earth where they believe the earthquake actually cracked the earth right there. And an earthquake came and it tore the temple from top to bottom, not bottom to top, top to bottom, as if God himself was ripping it open saying, now everybody could come into the judgment seat and find mercy. And what's super, super cool, if you go read your resurrection stories about Jesus, there are two angels there to greet them when they come. John specifically says there's one at the head and one at the foot of where he was laid. They're letting you know that two angels kept you from coming in to eternal life. Two angels showed you where judgment was. And now two angels are showing you where eternal life in him is. So that when you come into his presence through the name and the blood of Jesus, you're not coming into judgment. You're not coming into condemnation. The whole reason he did this is because he was birthing something beautiful for all of us to take part in so that we could receive his mercy and his grace and his presence in our hour of need. And I might have gone more than 40 seconds, but that connects to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four. 24. It says this, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So all through the Psalm, he's suffering, he's suffering. Where are you? Where are you? God, help me. I need you. Nobody else is around. God, don't quit on me. And then it says, but it ain't over. That ain't the end of the story. He goes on in verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied and those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And you're going, you're reading the Psalm and it's sad, 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 depressing, 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 but, but, and it's a big but, it is not the end of the story. He raises from the dead on the third day and when he does, power and dominion are handed to him. And now, as Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you and I am with you to the very end of the age. And that is so, yeah, let's clap, give God glory for a minute, yeah. But that is so important because Jesus isn't a dead savior. Yes, he died on a cross, but he rose from the dead and he changed the history of the world for all who will follow after him. It says Psalm 22, 29, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. Did you catch that in the other verses? The poor and now the rich. That covers everybody. 
All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Do you see it? The rich and the poor, do you know what they have in common? Death. You can't buy your way out of it. I mean, name the richest person in the world. I'm telling you what's going to happen to them. Name the poorest person in the world. I'll tell you what's going to happen to them. It's the great equalizer because it doesn't matter how much you have or how much education you have or how big your house is. We all end in the same place and we are powerless. We cannot do anything to keep ourselves alive. Oh, but there's one who can. There is one who can. Psalm 22, 30 says this. Descendants, the actual word of the NIV here is posterity. Go to the next slide for me. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. In a psalm that is all about death, yeah, in a psalm that is all about death, the psalm even concludes with, yeah, but when we look upon that death and we see the end of the story, there will be generations that will serve him. The word posterity here, just we don't really, I mean, it's in our original American documents, right? United States documents, but we don't use it very often. The concept here is descendants. So he will have a future after him and they will serve him. You wanna know what it means to be a Christian? It's right there. It's to serve our king. If there is no area in your life where you are serving him, then I wanna encourage you to get in now because the whole reason he died and rose from the dead is to win you to himself, to make you less selfish, more selfless, and more excited and on fire for what he is doing because the fact that he didn't stay dead means we won't either. And that doesn't begin after your last breath. That begins when you come up out of the waters of baptism, dead to sin, alive in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and ready to set this world on fire, ready to go, ready to storm the gates of hell, ready to say, you know what? The worst they could do is kill the body, but they cannot touch my soul, so let's go. Now, with that in mind, what I want to challenge you to do is every day this week, I want you to get on your knees. I just want you to pray. And if you don't want to pray this prayer, I don't care but I just want you to pray to God that he would come alongside you in fighting a battle for someone else. Guys, I literally wept last week for these fifth and sixth grade boys. I literally wept. You know why I wept? Because I see Satan winning a battle and it made me angry and I felt powerless for a minute to do anything about it. And then I turned my eyes to heaven and I said, God, help them. I just named them named them. And then God opened doors for me to talk to some of their parents and to say, look, I don't have answers for what you're going through, but I'm with you and I'm for you. And if you need anything, call me, message me. Let's see what we can do together. What would this world look like with a thousand adults who said the same thing, whether it's with our students or with our kids, whether it's greeting or coffee or here on worship, like leading us to the presence of God, a thousand people who said, I can't fix it, but I could take you to the one who can. With that, here's our prayer. Heavenly Father, hear my cry. My heart is heavy because fill in the blank. It might be for you, it might be for your children or your parents or a loved one. It might be for somebody else that God has placed in your path and for what they're going through. And you thought, I can't fix it, but I could take you to God. 
God, I know you are aware of this pain, but it feels you are so far away. Sometimes this feels really lonely, God, and I am tempted to wonder if you care. Yet I know that no matter what, life feels like you are near. You've always been near. From the first moment of my life until now, you have seen everything. So strengthen, fill in the blank, myself or this person I'm praying for, strengthen me. Now and open my or their eyes to see where you are working that I might trust in you and now more than ever. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna give you a chance to pray that prayer. We're gonna go right into communion. And the point of communion is for us to take this bread and remember that it represents the body of Jesus hanging on the cross and then to take this juice and it represents the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross. And I just wanna encourage you that as you come to this presence, lay out before him whatever you need, but cry out in your hour of need. You can be angry if you want, you can be frustrated if you want, you can be joyous if you want, that's okay too, but pray for yourself or for someone else in a way that believes that God is actually listening and desires to help. I'll start a prayer and then I'll hand it to you. Oh my God. We need another hour just to sit in your presence and uh, wonder at your glory. God, every time I think about the cross, every time I talk about the cross, it stirs in me, God, uh, this passion, this repentance, this desire to draw nearer to you. God, I pray that's exactly what you do right now. Meet us, meet us right here right now with whatever we're bringing before you for ourselves or for someone else. Meet us right here. Comfort us with your presence. And the same way that Jesus said, I feel alone. I feel like I'm suffering, but be near. <clears throat> God, may you be near us right now. And may you hear these cries for help. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' precious holy name. All God's people.